0: Hi folks, welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sari Ivry. Today, we bring you some fiction. David Ehrlich is best known as the founder of Tmol Shil That's a bookstore cafe in the heart of Jerusalem that's become a popular gathering place for writers and literature lovers. Ehrlich is a writer himself, and earlier this summer, Syracuse University Press put out the first English-language collection of his stories. The collection is called Who Will Die Last, and today we're going to hear one of our favorite stories from the collection. It's called The Store. We asked Ehrlich how this story came about. He told us he wrote it about 20 years ago, at the end of what had been, for him anyway, a very unfruitful writer's retreat up in Northern California.
1: And um, uh, on the last day, I just decided to give up because, indeed, nothing came out for me. And um, we took a little walk to uh, Bolinas, which is well known for all kinds of things, uh, for some hippie uh, history. Um, Anyways, we happened upon a second-hand store. And I walked into the second-hand store and I thought, wow, a second-hand store, that's a story. It makes a story. And within no time, like right there and then, I had the the whole story, uh, the store in my mind.
0: So he rushed home and he wrote it in about two hours.
1: And the funny thing is that it's been uh, the most successful story I've ever written.
0: Here it is, The Store, written by David Ehrlich, read for us today by John Haskell.
1: When Mika Rothman and his group founded our village 82 years ago, not a single road in Palestine had been paved yet, and hardly anyone had settled to the north and east. Once every day or two, a horseback rider or a carriage would pass along the road, and everyone would gather around to hear the news and gossip from Jaffa and from the other villages. Peace and quiet. That was our character throughout the years. Quiet quiet and hard work, and lending a hand when it was required, but also carefully guarding one another's privacy, each of us minding our own business. We take pride in that. With all due modesty, it should be noted that our village thrived and prospered beyond the expectations of its founders. There was no farm in the village that did not supply the Tanuva company with fine milk, excellent eggs, or lusciously sweet fruit— There was no home that did not raise three or four children, most of whom returned here immediately after their army service without descending into drugs or dangerous treks through jungles. Even during the worst of the economic recession of the 80s, we were far from financial ruin. No one went into debt. No one asked for help. Even when they built the new highway, which passed literally meters from the barque's back fence, we weren't much affected. Villages less solidly rooted than our own went through difficult transitions when the wave of modernization washed through their streets. But in our case, either because of our lack of interest in the world or because of the world's lack of interest in us, the atmosphere of the good old days lingered, and each of us held our own against the evil winds that blew. Even when the trucks barreled past, hauling their loads back and forth, perpetually delivering newspapers that had more colors than news, even then we could hear, beyond the roar, the rustle of the wings of birds that still remembered that, once, there were swamps here. And then Lucy Galilli died. Lucy... Elchanan's widow was stronger than steel, with roots that were deeply and firmly planted, and the spark in her eyes seemed to have leapt from one generation to another, radiating wisdom and experience since the days of Adam. The only thing was, they had no children. Immediately after the funeral, the great dispute over their house began. Some of us wanted to put in a library. A few suggested a small museum, and others thought that we should build a synagogue on the property. But before the dispute could really heat up, to everyone's amazement, a relative suddenly appeared. Needless to say, this person had never set foot in the village during the long lifetime of the Galilies. Moreover, there were some who remembered Lucy explicitly stating that she had no family anywhere. But unfortunately, this man, who was wearing what was perhaps the first suit that had ever appeared among us, proved that he was indeed a nephew of a cousin of Lucy's who had been killed in the Holocaust. And, before we could grow accustomed to the idea and put a stop to the rest of the process, the man entered into a selling frenzy. It should be understood that none of us had any experience with such matters. We did not know whether we should be taking legal action to try to stop the man, and if so, how to do it. And we were also unsure about the ethical justification for such a step, since, after all, the house did not belong to us. Now, of course, we regret our inaction. We regarded with astonishment the cast of characters that walked around and into poor Lucy's house, types we could scarcely believe existed in this country of ours, and wondered what interest they could possibly have in our village. The potential buyers appeared in a succession, as if in some horror movie, each with his own vision. One wanted to set up a stud farm, the second a restaurant, and the third intended to bring in beehives, What they shared was a basic unsuitability for our village and also a complete lack of interest in the primary question of whether the inhabitants of the place wanted them or not. Everything happened very quickly. In the course of two weeks, Elchanan Galili's house had been sold to a couple from Netanyahu. Rumor had it that the price reached a half million dollars, a purely imaginary sum for most of us. Until that point, it had not occurred to any of us that our plots of land had any particular financial value, the whole question of price having been simply irrelevant. From Uri Samet's nearby porch, we watched them unload furniture from a truck and then take a stroll around the orchard and a few days later paint the house a vulgar shade of cream. Every once in a while, they waved hello at us. We responded unenthusiastically. At that point, we were not yet aware of how careful we had to be with this apparently naive couple. After a few weeks, they noticed that they had neighbors. Every day, they knocked on someone else's door, introduced themselves, and wanted to have a conversation. It wasn't clear about what. To the best of our knowledge, no one responded positively to these belated attempts at neighborliness. It was clear that they wanted something, and whatever that something was, no good could possibly come of it. That may be why the matter of the store came as such a complete surprise. One day, Ilan, Yossi Amir's youngest son, went running through the village, calling, a store, a store, his voice breaking as if someone was trying to murder him turned out that overnight they had put up a billboard the size of a movie screen by the side of the highway to draw attention and direct traffic to the old Galilee house in which they were selling junk they had acquired the devil knows where. By the end of the week, more people had wandered around our village than had come through since the founding. "'In one fell swoop we had been transformed from some completely anonymous place "'to a point of interest on the Israeli map, "'a well-known attraction throughout the region "'and a necessary stop from anywhere to anywhere. "'It was impossible to work in the field for more than an hour running "'without some dubious face popping up before your eyes "'to ask where the restrooms were or how much you were selling your house for "'or which way was Elat. "'That couple seemed to have a sense for what would sell.' We couldn't understand why sane people would stop on their way home from the Sea of Galilee to buy such worthless junk. We snuck in there, and we were amazed at the illogical assortment of things they were selling. A faded umbrella for twenty shekels, a broken toaster, an old radio with a green light bulb, old records. Everything was in complete disarray, a mishmash of things that people had thrown out. In the middle of this mess, they had draped cloths from the east— "'peacock feathers, broken seashells, and who knows what else. "'At the far end of the store sat the man from Netanya, "'solemnly ringing up purchases on his cash register, "'the bell of which echoed from one end of the village to the other.' While the woman roamed importantly among the bargains, tossing around lies about the history of each piece of trash, it was especially nauseating to find Lucy Galilli's blue dress in a heap of clothing, and Elchanan's broken pitchfork, and a whole host of other objects that bore so many memories for us, each of which was worth more than the gang that was putting them up for sale. The main problem that faced us now was the inevitable corruption that awaited our younger generation. For eighty-two years we had been, without being aware of it, a place of peace and quiet, values and beauty, and now suddenly the ground had erupted beneath our feet and all the filth of the country was breaking into our streets, strolling about our yards without anyone stopping it, threatening to pour its evil stench over everything. As if in mourning we gathered to take counsel. Few of us had any ideas. After all, we were practical people. People who worked and toiled, honest and loyal as the day is long. How could we navigate the twisted ways that dominated the landscape over the horizon? It was decided that we should have a talk with them. Clearly, no one was eager to take the mission upon himself. Heads bowed, the delegation of three who had been chosen by lot went out to meet the couple from Netanya. It is not difficult to imagine the conversation between them three older farmers whose strength was in their hands, not their mouths, and the slippery pair who had invaded our lives. You can live here, that would be fine, someone said, but you have no right to turn our village into the whole country's whorehouse. The man and woman, for their part, tried to defend themselves with clever talk and with the absurd proposition that they would make a symbolic contribution to the village by erecting a monument to its war-dead. The conversation became no more fruitful after continuing for some five minutes. Our people were not swayed by the lady of the house's invitation to have a cup of coffee, and certainly not to sit down, and they left more or less as they had come. Two days later, and nothing happened. It is hard to believe that those people did not sense the ground burning beneath their feet. The village like a living, breathing creature, was preparing to vomit them forth, and even if no one expressed it in words, the matter hung in the air as threatening and tangible as a loaded gun. With no particular ardor, and with even less skill, we took the necessary steps. Katz's wife called them up to tell them that they would have to go. Then a note written in unambiguous terms was placed on their doorstep. It was clear that if that did not work, nothing would and that with every passing day our situation was becoming more dangerous. Nevertheless, we held off for another whole day. That night, terrible winds blew. As if in response to a call, we all assembled on Uri Samet's porch and gazed sorrowfully into the night. There, in the heart of the darkness, stood the small house, surrounded by an orchard and field and meadow, with a dovecote on the right and an abandoned dog kennel on the left. Because low clouds covered the moon, it all looked like one solid dark mass whistling in the wind like a horse flute. None of us said a word. There was no plan. With the smoldering eyes, we all faced in the same direction, as if everything were perfectly obvious. What remains uncertain is which of us went first, if, in fact, anyone did. But everyone was there, walking into the darkness in a single row, tense and ready. In one motion we all lit matches. In one motion we tossed them into the thorns, and together we stood and watched the fire break out and roll from the field toward the house. From all four directions the house caught fire and was utterly consumed. Of course, none of us intended to harm the people inside the house— No one knows why they didn't manage to wake up and escape. Did the fire spread too quickly, or were they under the influence of sleeping pills or drugs or some such thing? Undoubtedly, the heaps of junk they kept in their store helped fuel the flames. The cloth went up in smoke as if it had been resigned to ignite, and apparently the proprietors were simply trapped in the flaming inferno. By the time the firemen arrived, there was nothing for them to do but compliment us on our rapid mobilization in extinguishing the blaze. We thanked them for thanking us and waited for the ambulance to arrive and take the bodies away. Among us passed the thought, unexpressed, that we should report what had occurred, but of course we refrained from doing so. The police collected evidence for two or three days and rapidly came to the conclusion that the fire was probably set by Arabs— one of many such incidents of arson that had been spreading through the country. We were surprised to learn that the couple from Netanya had no heirs. We were compelled to bury them and say a few nice words ourselves. We waited for a while, convinced that something was about to happen, but nothing did. We took down the sign above the store, rescued what trees we could in the orchard, and finally assembled again to discuss the future of the plot. Again, a few people suggested putting in a library— Others, a small museum. And there were those who brought up the idea of the synagogue. But because of a general unwillingness to get entangled in investments, the plot still sits there, abandoned.
0: That was John Haskell, Reading the Store, written by David Ehrlich. It was translated by Naomi Seidman. The story was first published in English in a collection called Israel, A Traveler's Literary Companion, which was published by Whereabouts Press. David Ehrlich's new collection is called Who Will Die Last, and it's just out from Syracuse University Press. We want to give a very special thank you today to our reader, John Haskell, who is a great writer in his own right. Check him out. And also, thank you very much to Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Thank you so much for listening and join us again next time.